Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a father who loves to give good gifts to your children. And we thank you for the gift of your son, who came to be our saviour. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who came to be our teacher. And before we thank you for any of the particular gifts the Spirit might give us, we want to thank you for the gift of the Spirit himself. And as we think about his work tonight, I pray that he will be active to guide our thoughts so that we might think rightly about him and his work and honor you by growing in our understanding of the Spirit so that we might glorify you by giving thanks for the Spirit in a greater way and relying on him more fully in our lives. So I pray that you will help us and we want you to be glorified in all that we say and think. Amen. This is our fourth installment on the Holy Spirit. We started with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, then the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and last time we thought about the work of the Holy Spirit today. Well, obviously we got our information there from the New Testament. But before we tackle anything new, there are a few things I think it's worthwhile reminding ourselves about. First of all, as we trace the work of the Holy Spirit through Scripture, we notice the Holy Spirit's work, if we were to describe it in a general way, the Holy Spirit's work is to lead creation to its destiny. And that destiny is that all things be conformed to God's will. The work began at creation and it will be completed in the new creation, in God's new heaven and earth. And as we thought about the significance of this, one of the uh, statements that we looked at was this. The Spirit is not a passive power that we can wield as we choose. The Spirit is God, a being who requires that we submit ourselves to be led by him. The Holy Spirit is really not for our own pleasure or purposes. The Spirit is here with us to accomplish God's purposes, not ours. I've mentioned that several times already, and it's fundamental to getting our thinking right about the Holy Spirit. And that applies to what we're going to think about today. Then previously, moving into the New Testament, we thought about the Spirit's floodlight ministry. The Holy Spirit, we saw, does not want the spotlight on himself. He wants it to be on Jesus. And uh, Jim Packer says, The Spirit's message to us is never look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see him and see his glory, get to know him. And we see that clearly on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out on Jesus' followers. The Spirit came testifying to the truth about Jesus. And he came empowering the witness and service of those who belong to Jesus. We saw last time the church is dependent on the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives life to the church in the first place and every individual member of the church. And it's the Holy Spirit who develops life in the church. We looked at five ways he does that. He applies scripture He brings unity, he produces fruit, he distributes gifts, and he enables perseverance. And uh, so I said last time we would focus today on the gifts of the Spirit particularly. 
But as we do, let's remember the gifts are a part of what the Holy Spirit does. His gifts are part of his much, much wider work. And we have a very small view of the Spirit if we think he's only about the gifts. In fact, the reason we're spending a whole session on this is only because the church has sometimes given the impression that gifts are all there is to know about the Spirit. So that means we have to do some extra work to make sure we neither make too much of the gifts nor overreact and make too little of the gifts. So with that in mind, we'll think today about the purpose of the gifts, the distribution of the gifts, the variety of the gifts. We'll look at three particular gifts. And we'll finish by asking, what does it really mean to live in the power of the Spirit? So first of all, what is the purpose of spiritual gifts? The New Testament tells us pretty clearly they are for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12. They are to build up the church. 1 Corinthians 14. So if gifts ever become a source of division in the church, if they ever become a source of personal pride in the church, that is a denial of the Spirit's work. Gifts are not occasions for boasting. They're not tools for personal therapy. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are opportunities for service. And so the Apostle Peter says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. The purpose of the Spirit's gifts is to serve the church. And that statement in First Peter shows us something else. Each member of the church has been given at least one gift. Paul says the same thing. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That's 1 Corinthians 12. In Romans 12, he says we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And reflecting on those scriptures, John Stott says, gifts are more than just widespread in the church. They are universal. Not everyone has every gift, but we all have a gift. And Stott goes on to say, this fact that every Christian has a gift and therefore a responsibility, and that no Christian is passed by and left without endowment, is fundamental to the New Testament doctrine of the church. It should also transform the life of Christians and of churches. For the traditional image of the church, the local church, is of an overworked pastor assisted perhaps by a small nucleus of dedicated workers, while the majority of members make little or no contribution to the church's life and work. It conjures up the picture rather of a bus one driver, many drowsy passengers, then of a body, all members active, each contributing a particular activity to the health and effectiveness of the whole. So if we've any of us been thinking of the church like a bus, we need to start thinking of it the way the New Testament describes it, as a body. When it comes to distribution of the gifts they're given to every member of the church. 
not for our own personal glorification or fulfillment, but for the good of the church body. So then what kind of gifts does the Holy Spirit give? The answer is, they are incredibly varied when we look at the New Testament. There are five lists of gifts in the New Testament. Two of them are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The others are in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. And together, they list 21 different gifts. I won't go through them all, but just to show the kind of variety, we have gifts as diverse as teaching, tongues, faith, showing mercy, healing, giving, administration, and evangelism. Some of those lists overlap, but none of them are completely the same. And there's no indication the lists are meant to be exhaustive. They're representative only of the wide variety of gifts the Spirit gives. The Greek word for gift that's used in the New Testament is the word charisma, from which we get our word charisma. And if we look beyond the lists of gifts, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul calls both singleness and marriage charisma. In Romans 6, Paul says, the charisma of God is eternal life. So that widens things a bit. Every Christian has the gift of eternal life. And everyone who's married or single has the gift of either marriage or singleness. That's true whether they're Christians or not. How do we make sense of that? Well, our word grace comes from the word charisma. And so with all these things, we're talking about graciously given gifts from God. The Holy Spirit distributes his gifts liberally. And as Christians, our challenge is to recognize them as his gifts and use them to serve God rather than serving ourselves. When we read through the lists of gifts, we notice some of them are things that every Christian is called to. For example, all of us are called to serve. All of us are called to exhort or encourage. All of us are called to give. All of us are called to show mercy. All of us are called to evangelize, to share the good news about Jesus. Every Christian is called to those things. But the New Testament says some of us are given gifts in those particular areas. Some of us aren't. As an example, here's the list of gifts in Romans 12. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So how do we reconcile that with the fact that elsewhere in the New Testament we're all called to serve, encourage, give, and show mercy? 
The point seems to be we are all called to those things, but the Holy Spirit has graciously given some of us the energy or the personality or the temperament or the resources to excel in one of those areas. A very obvious one is giving. If God has graciously given wealth to you or me, then it's our privilege to use that gift to serve the church, both the local and the worldwide church. God has graciously given some of us a bright, encouraging personality. Maybe an ability to feel what other people are feeling. Or the kind of personality people will gravitate to and follow. Some of us might have an ability to organize or to speak persuasively. We're not to use those gifts to manipulate people or to elevate ourselves. They're given to us for building up the church. Or if we look at it from another angle, all of us are called to share the good news, for example. And if you have a particular gift for chatting to non-believers... If you have a gift of sharing the good news in a natural way, then your calling is to find ways to use that gift to the full. Go looking for ways you can use it above and beyond what every Christian is called to. Put yourself in situations where your gift will be put to work. All of us are called to show mercy. But if you have a particular sensitivity to those who are in need of mercy, then seek out people in the church who will benefit from your patience and mercy. And look wider than the church. Maybe look into fostering or helping at a homeless ministry or a prison ministry. We're all called to show mercy. And if you have a particular gift for mercy, don't just get frustrated that other people aren't as merciful as you are. Look for ways to put your gift to work. Last time we looked at the fruit of the Spirit. We said the Holy Spirit is working to produce the same fruit in every Christian. And some of the gifts are very close to what in other places the New Testament calls fruit. The Holy Spirit is working to make us all merciful. It's part of the godly character he's developing in all of us. And for the good of the church, the Holy Spirit gives some people in the church a fast injection of mercy. You could call it mercy on steroids. And he does that not so the rest of us can forget about being merciful. He does it so there can be mercy going around while the rest of us are growing up to be merciful people. And so we can have examples of mercy to aspire to. The gifts of the Spirit are incredibly varied. And before we move on, we should notice there's no indication at all that any one gift has more of the Spirit in it than any other gift. Some gifts might be more spectacular than others. Some might do more to build up the church than others. But there's no indication any of the Spirit's gifts show more of his presence than the other gifts. 
So, the person who has the gift of tongues does not have more of the Spirit than the person with the gift of administration, for example. One gift might seem more mundane than the other, but neither gift manifests the Spirit's presence more than the other does. In 1 Corinthians 12, those two gifts, tongues and administration, are listed side by side. Both of them are signs of God's grace to his church. Now having noticed that, let's think about miraculous gifts. A part, and only a part, of the Spirit's work. Specifically, we'll think in a moment at, uh, about prophecy, tongues, and healing. Those are gifts of the Spirit that aren't obviously linked to personality, like mercy, or to circumstances, like giving. The church has sometimes made the mistake of thinking the miraculous gifts are the only evidence the Spirit is at work. But as we've just seen, the Spirit gives an incredible variety of gifts. And as we saw last time, godly character, the fruit of the Spirit, is just as significant if not more significant, as a sign of the Spirit's presence. In fact, I think we can go further than just saying miraculous gifts aren't the only evidence the Spirit is at work. We can go further and say miraculous gifts are not even the primary evidence the Spirit is at work. That was a mistake being made by the church in Corinth. If we read Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians we discover the Corinthians had elevated the gift of tongues to the primary place. They thought that was the sign the Spirit was at work. And when Paul responds to them, he doesn't say tongues are not a sign of the Spirit's work. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul is positive about the gift of tongues, but he goes on to say, you're wrong to elevate that gift and make it the test of whether someone really has the Spirit. It can't be the test because the Spirit only gives that gift to some Christians. Every Christian has the Spirit, but not every Christian has the gift of tongues, Paul says. He also says tongues are less useful than other gifts for building up the church. That's his point when he tells the Corinthians to eagerly desire the greater gifts. He goes on to explain, tongues are a gift that primarily builds up the individual. The greater gifts are the ones that do more to build up the church body. So when he says eagerly desire those gifts, he's not being negative about tongues. He's calling the church to stop overestimating tongues and stop underestimating the Spirit's other gifts. So we mustn't make the mistake that Corinth made. We mustn't fall into the kind of Christianity that limits the Spirit's work to the miraculous. The Spirit is constantly at work. And if you and I only have eyes for his more spectacular work, we're going to end up wondering if the Spirit has taken a holiday. The reality is, at certain times and in certain places, the Spirit does work 
in more spectacular ways. He has his own reasons for doing that. But if we try to insist the Spirit must work miraculously at all times and all places, then one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to become disillusioned because we think the Spirit has abandoned us, since nothing miraculous seems to be happening. Or we will try to engineer the miraculous. We'll try to make the reality fit our idea of what the Spirit is supposed to do. And that leads to all kinds of silliness and all kinds of harm being done. It results in deception and people being manipulated just so we can keep having miracles to talk about. When the church gets fixated on miraculous healing, for example, the result is lots of people are declared to be healed who aren't actually healed at all. And lots of people get healed who weren't genuinely sick in the first place. So let's be open to miracles. Let's pray for them. And let's allow the Spirit to do miracles or not do them as he pleases. Our appreciation of the Spirit's work has got to be wider than just miracles. And I should also point out some churches have made the opposite mistake to the Corinthian church. If the Corinthian church elevated the miraculous above everything else, some churches have ruled out the miraculous altogether. They've argued that the Spirit no longer works that way. But no one claims, as far as I'm aware, that the gift of teaching has ceased today. No one claims the gift of giving has ceased or the gift of showing mercy. So why would we single out the gifts of tongues, prophecy, and healing and decide that those gifts have ceased? The New Testament gives us no permission to do that. It doesn't separate out the gifts of the Spirit in that way. If Corinth needed to stop obsessing about miracles, some other churches need to waken up to the possibility of miracles. Now that we've thought about this generally, I'll make just a few specific comments about each of the three miraculous gifts that I mentioned a moment ago. First of all, tongues. What is the gift of tongues? I think we could describe it as a form of prayer to God that is incomprehensible to the person who's praying. It's an outpouring of feelings of praise expressed in signs and words that the speaker themselves doesn't understand. We noticed earlier it's wrong to make tongue speaking a sign that somebody has the Spirit. Paul says not every Christian will speak in tongues. If we make it the sign of having the Spirit, that just pushes people into faking it at great cost to their integrity. But for those who are given this gift, we might wonder, are these tongues real languages? Some people will say yes, some people will say no. As far as I can see, they might sometimes be real languages and sometimes not. 
In Acts chapter 2, they obviously were real languages. On the day of Pentecost, we're told the disciples were filled with the Spirit and they spoke in real languages. Jerusalem at that time was full of pilgrims who had come from all over the world. And Acts 2 says, as they listened to the disciples, they said to one another, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. What does this mean? But in Corinth, the tongues were apparently not recognizable languages. In chapter 14, Paul says, if you're speaking in tongues in church and an outsider comes in, they won't ask, what does this mean? They'll say, this doesn't mean anything. These people are out of their minds. So Paul's counsel to the church in Corinth is, as a concession to your way of doing things, don't speak in tongues in the church unless there's someone who can interpret. And ideally, Paul says, don't speak in tongues at all in the church. Use that gift at home and in private. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he's not belittling the gift in any way, but he says, in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul is positive about tongues, but negative about tongues in church. The ancient writer Chrysostom put it like this. The aim of church services is not to astonish, bringing a suspicion of madness, but to draw people to wonder and worship. All through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul hammers the point that words spoken in church must be clear and understandable. And as he says that, he fully expects that tongue speakers will be able to control their use of their gift. He does not expect them to be in some kind of ecstasy where they're out of control. Well, then let's think about prophecy. We could spend ages on this. But I think it boils down to this. When the New Testament speaks about prophecy, it's talking about the guidance of the Holy Spirit. All of us, I think, believe the Holy Spirit can guide us. Many of us can point to times when we have sensed his guidance. Even if we wouldn't have said at the time, the Spirit is leading me to do this or he's leading me not to do that, we can look back and say, the Spirit did lead me in that situation. So part of this, I think, is the terminology that each of us is used to. Some people are going to be more reserved about it. Others will be more bold and they'll say, God told me something or other. And what they mean is, I think God might be telling me this. The trouble with saying God told me is that we can very easily misunderstand what God is saying. Or we can trick ourselves into hearing God say what we desperately want him to say. The only time we can say with full confidence God told me is when we're reading the Bible. 
We read in the Bible, do not commit adultery, and we can say with full confidence, God told me not to commit adultery. The Old Testament prophets were genuinely able to stand up and say, thus says the Lord. But the kind of prophecy we find in the New Testament is not the same. We know it's not the same because we are not to expect any new revelation from God today. The last verses of the Bible make that very clear. We also know it because when the New Testament speaks about prophecy, it is always presented as something that has to be weighed and evaluated. It's not presented as something that has the same authority as Scripture. And so just because someone today says, God told me, that doesn't make the matter cut and dried. There's an expectation in the New Testament there's going to be wheat and chaff mixed together when we deal with the Spirit's guidance. Some purported prophecies or instances of guidance are going to be genuine. Some purported prophecies are going to be due to the curry you ate the night before. And some of them might even be intentional deception on the part of the person delivering the prophecy. So if a person has a prophecy they want to share, in the New Testament, the church body and in particular the church leaders are called to weigh carefully what is said. That's 1 Corinthians 14. They are to be discerning. They are not just to swallow it as certainly from the Lord because someone said it was. One writer says, gullibility is not a Christian virtue. The way the Apostle Paul says the same thing is, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. The only word from God we can take as absolutely reliable is the written word of God, the Bible. Jesus himself guaranteed the absolute trustworthiness of that. And that's why our church services do not focus on prophecy. We have preaching that aims to represent God's written word. That's the word we can stake our lives on. Then let's think about healing. The gift of healing is mentioned in one of the five New Testament lists of gifts. But in the book of James, we're given more detail about it. These are the the verses that deal with it in James 5. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well. The Lord will raise them up. Notice a few things about this. First, it's the sick person who takes the initiative in this. They are to call the elders. The New Testament does not talk about healing services where church leaders call people to come and be healed. Second, James says, you'll notice, call the elders. He doesn't say call the person who has the gift of healing. 
And third, there is a promise here about healing. The prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well. The Lord will raise them up. But there's no getting around the fact not every sick person who gets prayed for is healed. I don't even think people who are the most enthusiastic about healing ministries would claim they are. They can't claim that because the facts show some people receive prayer for healing and they are not healed. And yet here it is, a promise. So how do we make sense of this? Well, notice it is a promise, but it's a conditional promise. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. So some people have thought, ah. So the promise will come true if you just have enough faith. Either the elders or the sick person or both. Now, if that understanding of this verse were true, it would mean two things. It would mean healing depends on us. It would mean that if we have enough faith, every person can be healed every time. We have the Holy Spirit on a leash. He has to perform. And this understanding of the verse would mean When people are not healed, it's either their own fault or it's the fault of the elders who prayed for them. You didn't have enough faith, dummy. Is that right? No. Apart from being deeply insensitive to those who would love to be healed and are not healed, That understanding of the verse does not fit all that we've heard about the Holy Spirit so far. The Holy Spirit is not on a leash. Hebrews chapter 2 says he distributes his gifts according to his will. 1 Corinthians 12 says he distributes his gift just as he determines. There has to be a better way to understand what James is saying. And I think the key is how we understand the word faith here. So if we wind back to those lists of gifts in the New Testament, in the very first list, 1 Corinthians 12, it's not list in order of chronology, but the first list that I mentioned. In 1 Corinthians 12, faith is listed as a gift of the Spirit. And in that context, it cannot be a reference there to saving faith. Every Christian has received the gift of saving faith. 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about a faith, a gift of faith that is given sometimes to those who already are Christians. Don Carson describes it like this. It's the God-given ability to trust God for a certain thing in a certain situation. Some of you have heard of George Muller. George Muller is an example of someone who was given the gift of this kind of faith. He felt God was leading him to step out and begin orphanages 
open orphanages. Even though George Mueller didn't have two pennies to rub together. Now there's no verse in scripture that promises if we start orphanages, God will supply their needs. But God wanted George Mueller to start orphanages. And he gave George Mueller the gift of faith that he needed to step out in faith and start that work. And we could give lots of other examples. Men and women who started ministries or undertook some great work when there was no reasonable hope of that work succeeding. They did it because God gave them the gift of faith to do it. Now let's take that understanding of faith and bring it back to James chapter 5. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, the ill person well. As far as I can see, this has nothing to do with the sick person or the elders summoning up faith or working themselves up to the point where the Holy Spirit cannot resist giving them what they want. No, what James is saying is, if you're sick, call for the elders. The elders will come. They will pray for you. And it may be the Holy Spirit will give you, or he'll give the elders, or all of you, the gift of faith in that particular situation. The God-given ability to trust God for healing in that instance. You can't make that faith come. But if it does come, you will know it and the sick person will be healed. So when it comes to healing, let us not abuse sick people by telling them they're sick because they don't have enough faith to get well. Let's pray for healing. And let's also remember the Holy Spirit distributes his gifts according to his will, not ours. And when our gifted surgeons bring healing, let's give God the glory for that. That kind of healing might not be what we would call miraculous, but it is still a divine gift. All the way from the skill God gave the surgeons to the way that our body responds to their treatment. And just very briefly to finish, let's think about living in the power of the Spirit. What does that mean? We noticed earlier we must not restrict the Spirit's work to the spectacular. The fruit of the Spirit is an even greater evidence of his work. Remember, Satan can produce spectacular things. Read the book of Exodus and you discover that Pharaoh's magicians could copy some of Moses' miracles. But only the Holy Spirit of God can produce godly character in a person's life. Unity in Christ in the church, brotherly love in the church, sacrificial service. Men and women who show those qualities are living by the power of the Spirit even if they never see a miracle in their whole lives. In fact, men and women like that are walking miracles. 
It's a miracle when a person dead in their sins is raised to spiritual life and begins to live for the glory of God. Living faithfully in our unspectacular, ordinary circumstances. Loving God, loving others, even when it seems to bring no reward or no success. That is living in the power of the Spirit. That is a supernatural life. I'm going to end with some words from a pastor in England called Steve Timmis. This is a review he wrote of a book written by someone else called Practicing the Power. And he's speaking in this review about the danger of confining the Spirit's work to spectacular miracles. And it struck a chord with me when I read it. He says, I'd love to see the dead raised. I want to see cancers healed with thrilling frequency. I covet testimonies of multiple people having their heart's secrets exposed so they acknowledge God is indeed among his people. But I don't. The anecdotal evidence cited by good friends is underwhelming. I can and do ask. I can and do expect. At times I could even be accused of pestering my Heavenly Father for these things. But as I wait, the Lord continues to work powerfully by his Spirit in transforming lovers of self into lovers of God and others. I see many evidences of lives changed and of sustaining grace. I hear God speak directly and pertinently through his word as it is faithfully taught. So, brothers and sisters, press on with the daily task of following Jesus with joy, even amid sacrifice. I'm sure that qualifies as practicing the power. That's all that I had planned to say, but we want to give opportunity for questions or comments. We have a mic, so if you have something, just put your hand up and we'll get the mic to you so everyone can hear what you're saying. <laughs>